Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome back to Ausbiz Australia's only live business, financial, and investment channel. And of course, that means it's time for the call. 60 minutes, 10 stocks, two experts, not just experts, we should say share market gurus, I think, to hold our hand and point us in the right direction. Delighted to uh, have with us Gaurav Sodhi from Investmart. Gaurav is at uh, home on the on the 4G, ensconced in isolation. How are you going, Gaurav? You, uh, you enjoying working from home? Look, it's not too bad. I've been given the kids' room today. Me and my wife are both here, so we're fighting over the home office. She woke up earlier than me today, which is why I'm in here. Um, and my 4G is terrible. So apart from that, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> Gaurav, I think that you represent a lot of Australian households at the moment as you juggle both parents working from home. And then, well, if, you, if you're in New South Wales, the kids are on uh, school holidays. If you're in other states, you've got to start juggling the... Uh, uh, the supervision of home learning as well for the kids. So it is a minefield out there at the moment. But one guy who has escaped that, and he was telling me uh, a bit earlier he needed the break, was Michael Wayne from Medallion Financial. Michael, good to see you. Yeah, good to be back. I mean, I don't have kids. I'm not married, so it's a bit easier for me to escape. That, that solo isolation is a bit mind-numbing sometimes. Yeah, it is. I think when we first started out with this, uh, everyone thought, oh, this is going to be a bit of an adventure for a week or two, <laughs> a month into it. And I think everyone's going, no, nah, yeah. there are some advantages of, work, of going to work. Look, the novelty's worn off and there's only so many walks you can go on, I think, in one day. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Well, it's great to have you both as part of the call today. And uh, it's a really interesting selection of stocks today from, uh, from airlines to med tech to, uh, uh, to building materials. So... Um, and, and uh, what I love is discovering little companies um, that I'd never heard of before who have actually been reasonably good performance on the market. So hopefully we can uncover a couple of gems out of the 10 for you today. So let's get stuck straight into it. And uh, Michael, we might kick off with you with uh, our first stock, um, Electro Optic Systems. It's sort mm-hmm. of a, a defence contractor, isn't it? That's and right. Just one of the, in the last couple of days, one of the many Australian companies who have raised a fair bit of capital. Yeah, this is a bit of a sci-fi business, this one. Um, it's involved in laser-based weapons defence systems. Whoa. So It is very Matrix, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, very, very out there. And it was a market um, darling going back you know, uh, sort of over the last couple of years. Uh, yep. It performed very, very well. It's come back to the field uh, a long way, but relative to its performance over the last couple of years, it hasn't been too bad a performer at all. Um, they've got a number of contracts locked in place, um, I think to the extent of 250 mil in this year and then 600 mil over the next years as well. Uh, they've been seeing revenue and earnings growth in the vicinity of, of 40, 50%. So there are definitely aspects of this business to like. 
Um, they've perhaps been a little bit opportunistic um, in raising some capital uh, in this environment. They already had a fair bit of cash on their balance sheet. Um, from what I can tell, it's not one I looked into too much, just given the fact that it runs so hard. But now that it's come back, it's worth looking into a little bit more. Um, but from what I can tell, um, they've got some good contracts in place, a pretty stable balance sheet, and they don't really trade on that high multiple. From I think it's around sort of 20, 25 times earnings. So it's obviously a higher risk play. Um, yeah. Their performance long term is contingent on how many contracts they can continue to lock in. Um, but it's definitely an exciting business and one to keep an eye on. Yeah, and they're, they're in the US too, aren't they? That's Those right. Self- Actually, established business um, presence in the US, which is something that a lot of businesses in Australia can't say. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Gaurav, um, uh, Donald Trump seems to want somebody to hate all the time with the, with the Chinese uh, particularly in focus. That defence sector in the US is massive, isn't it? And, and really underpins the economy. What do you reckon of electro-optics? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting little business technically. So half the business really deals with trying to um, identify and target satellites um, in space. And the other half is, is, a, is a defense manufacturer or contractor, um, you know, trying to, trying to use lasers to identify enemies in the battlefields and for weapon systems. It is, Michael, Michael said it rightly, it, it's, it's a sci-fi kind of business. Um, takes me back to the 80s Star Wars kind of scenario. <laughs> Look, um, I have a few issues with this, actually. Um, and before I begin on that, let, let me just preface all this by saying that we need to remember that when we look at the books of the business, the profit is an accountant's fiction. It is literally made up numbers um, that come from the imaginations of accountants. And they're trying to quite legitimately translate what's happening into the, from the real business onto some sort of um, uh, analytical framework. It doesn't always reflect reality, and I think here we have a good example of that. So this is a contract-based manufacturer, and its revenue recognition um, doesn't really match up with the cash flows of the business. So revenues have actually grown really strongly over the last few years, and it's earned its status as a market darling based on revenue um, rises, and that revenue then drops down into very large increases in profit. But then you turn over to the cash flow statement, and there's just no cash flow here. Um, in fact, it's actually generating more higher operating negative operating cash flow than it has been doing for years. So while um, net profit has been climbing, cash flow actually has been declining. And to dig into that, you really need to get into the nitty gritty of contract accounting. Um, so they recognise revenues at the time of um, you know at the time they make these these multi-year contracts, but that doesn't actually correspond with when they get paid. And that goes some way to explaining why a business that notionally had $40 million of cash on its books went to the market to raise equity and a big chunk of equity at sort of half the price it was trading at a few months ago. It tells you something about the cash position of this business and where one's analytical focus should be and it should not be on the P&L. We ought to focus squarely on the cash flow here and the cash flow is very poor. Um, this is a really interesting business. I think it's been in, uh, sensibly managed but um, we need to throw the multiples away, and on a cash flow basis, I just I don't think this is um, this doesn't mean our our grades for an investment quality business. So I'd, I'd be avoiding this for now. Yeah, and you make an interesting point, Gaurav, because you've got to look at the the accounting sort of regulations for particular business on how, how they treat 
invoicing and revenue and 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 also in in some sectors as well um capital appreciation just drops to the revenue line does it so it can really mislead you yeah it's not a sexy part of this job but it's a really important part of this job and it's often where we uncover inefficiencies and errors it's a great source of opportunity if you can get into the nitty-gritty of accounting and it can save you from tremendous errors yeah. i'm not claiming this is a tremendous error but i just think that the notional cheapness um, is not warranted and on a cash flow basis there's um, this is not as profitable as it appears yeah. okay All right, let's um look at our our second stock in our 10 that we're looking at with the call today um Auckland International Airport, just gone through, uh, Michael, a, um, a controversial cap raising where they they sort of squeezed out their biggest shareholder, didn't they, in, yeah. the, in the Auckland Council, which got a few Kiwis uh, a bit narky about it. But um, as an airport, one of the best. Well, that's right. Look, not too dissimilar from Sydney Airport in some ways, in that over recent years, they've seen a huge influx um, of overseas tourists coming into the country through the primary main airport. Um, they've seen a good increase in, in earnings and, and return on equity. They've managed to get their net gearing levels down as well. They've got very good net interest coverage as well. So although they do carry a bit of debt on their balance sheet, not only has the debt been declining, but their interest coverage has been improving. Um, they've obviously had to come to the market to shore up their balance sheet in this yep. tough period because of the fact that no one's traveling at all, which is a sensible move to make. Over time, you would have to think that international travel will resume. It might not recapture the levels that we saw pre the coronavirus crisis, but it certainly will go a long way to recapturing most of that lost um, demand over the long run. So it's a business that we're kind of interested in at these levels. They have actually suspended their dividend at yeah. the moment. Uh, they've cut back on their CapEx program. They've cut costs elsewhere in the business as well. So. Their balance sheet's in a position to easily get them through this crisis. And after a sizable fall like we've seen, it could be worth picking up, um, particularly once mm. they reinstate that dividend. The one caveat to all of that is it's less attractive in our view to Sydney airports because of some of the because of the distribution that Sydney airports pays relative to um, Auckland International Airport. But both of them will likely see a pause in their dividends for some time. Yep. It's just how they come back online once mm. that does occur. Okay, so you prefer Sydney Airport? Yeah, or but they're both quite good quality airports and, and yeah. infrastructure assets as far as they as far as they go. Yeah. Gaurav, what do you think of Auckland Airport? I suppose the big difference to Sydney Airport is that Auckland actually owns the land, don't they? Sydney leases it, so there's there's almost a property play in Auckland Airport as well as the, the travel and tourism. Yeah, it's actually a really important point, David. Um, the ownership um, of all its underlying property opens up so many more opportunities for Auckland Airport than it does with than it does for Sydney. Um, they're actually quite different beats when you break them down. Auckland is a quasi property developer, really. It's the, in fact, the largest property developer in New Zealand, and a lot of its asset base is actually regulated. So whereas Sydney gets a lot of um, its revenue and particularly its profit, the cream comes from its unregulated assets. For Auckland, it's really for the moment, a, a almost a regulated um, asset. And the regulated asset base, which determines the ultimate returns for the business is going to triple in the next 10 years. So it's, it's an easy bet that 
that profits are going to grow quite substantially into the next decade, that that growth will require quite a bit of capex. So the fact that they're not willing to spend any money for the next year or so does detract from its value. But this is a tremendous asset. Um, um, if you can pick this up around asset value, um, which is around 440, 450, this is a, a terrific um, purchase at the moment. And even sort of at 560, it's not a bad buy. I'd be, I'd be trickling money in now and, and at lower prices, you can put a bit more in. Um, but it's a really attractive asset. Um, uh, look, the, 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 the fact that they own their underlying property also makes me a bit more comfortable with the balance sheet. Um, and I think it is appropriately geared now following the capital raising. I'm expecting Sydney Airport to have to raise capital at some stage. I think they've gotten cute with their capital structure and they hold too much debt to minimize tax, not because it's it's the most efficient um, way to structure mm. that business. And I think there'll be a reckoning for that sort of cuteness um, in this market. And I'm pretty sure them and along with a whole lot of other businesses are going to have to um, swap out some debt for, for some equity in their, in their structure. Okay. All right. Uh, so a tick uh, from both of you there for Auckland Airport, although uh, Michael, um, liking Sydney Airport a bit more than... Yeah, than on a yield basis, look, relative to, say, that the 10-year Treasury, and look, the market can sometimes be very simplistic in these sorts of things. Yep. A lot of investors focus on the yield relative to, say, the Treasury rate. And Sydney Airport uh, ticks the box in that respect. Um, right. And considering that it's trading on a same dividend yield today as it was five years ago, once it starts paying its dividend again, it should be paying the same yields it was five years ago, yet the Treasury yields come down a long, long way. In the eyes of many investors, it becomes more attractive in sure. that respect. Okay. All right, our third stock, um, one of the, the great brand names in the, uh, in the Australian building product sector, uh, CSR. Michael? Yeah, look, the, the old sugar refinery, yep. it spun off that business, I think, 10 years ago or so now. So it's a lot more streamlined operation than it has been in the past. It used to be a, somewhat of a, an old school conglomerate. Um, the industry in general has consolidated in recent years. Um, obviously, housing construction uh, increased significantly throughout the housing boom, and that enabled CSR to deliver returns on capital um, above its cost of capital, probably at an unsustainable rate. Um, going forward, it's unlikely that new buildings um, or new housing starts will be that high. In fact, they're projected to come down quite significantly in the next year or two, and that should be a bit of a handbrake on CSR going forward. Uh, the business is well capitalised. It's in a strong position balance sheet-wise, which enables them to potentially look at different acquisitions in the future. Uh, but just given where we are with the coronavirus and the unknown impact on the housing yeah. market and construction industry, uh, we'll be steering clear uh, of that for yeah. now. Uh, are you steering clear of Boral as well? Same with Boral. Probably prefer CSR at the moment over Boral just because Boral's got all their issues with the overseas US acquisition that they yeah. undertook a couple of years ago. Um, so I prefer the simplicity perhaps of CSR over Boral just at this stage, um, although probably a sector that we've steered clear of in general right. um, over the last sort of 12 months or so. So we're not big on that construction space at all. Okay. Uh, Gaurav, what's your view on, uh, on CSR? It's, it's one that can look deceptively tempting because the multiples are quite attractive and the yield is notionally up towards 6%. So on if you're just simply screening on numbers, then this really screams out as very interesting. And um, this is exactly why we don't invest based on numbers alone, because this is actually a very poor quality business. And it's been a 
poor performer for for a long, long time. I remember when this thing was trading at fifteen dollars, sort of twenty years ago or so, um, and now it's a fraction of that. It's it's not generated any any sustainable wealth for shareholders over decades, and it operates in a really tough environment with no competitive advantage. Um, I, I just don't see why you need to be here. It looks okay, like it's it's pretty well managed for what it is. The balance sheet's in good shape, but I just don't see you, that you're going to make excess returns out of this stock when we're in a market where there's lots of great opportunities at the moment and we just don't need to be here. Um, an alternative, if I may suggest one, um, we've recently upgraded um, Brickworks, which ah. is, it sounds like it's a competitor, but it's really not. Um, Brickworks is mostly an investment business with a small um, a brick operation sort of attached to it. There's a brick operation in the US and here in Australia. But most of its assets and most of its value come from a big stake in Sol Patterson's group, which is an investment vehicle, and they have a wonderful underlying um, property business. So what happens is when they when they mine um, bricks in the quarry, those quarries last for decades, and they're usually located in the outskirts of the city. And as the city expands over the course of the, the mine's life, um, they, they suddenly find that that quarry is, is prime real estate. And when it's exhausted, they then um, roll the exhausted quarry into a property trust and develop it as commercial property. And so they have this wonderful portfolio and runway of commercial um, property based on old brick quarries. And it's it's been a great wow. source of growth and a wonderful stabilizer for the very cyclical um, brick business. Brickworks is currently below its, um, its tangible asset value, wonderfully managed. Um, I think they've generated stunning returns over a long period of time. I would much rather own that than own CSR. Oh, that's interesting. Um, they had a Brickworks out at Epping, didn't they? I think, or, or a quarry at Epping that they redeveloped as well. Yeah, that's right. yeah. yeah. Uh, so you you get you get a natural. Yeah, and that's how it turned into a, a huge um, piece of property. Yeah, exactly. You get a you get a natural tearing <laughs> of the site because they they mined everything out of it. But um, yeah, that's fascinating. Great way of uh, looking at it. So Brickworks over CSR. Uh, just pointing out those uh, China economic uh, figures that have just come out. Uh, quarterly contraction, 9.8% of the Chinese economy. Uh, of course, that was at the, the peak of their COVID pandemic. Uh, the expectation was a contraction of 9.9%. So they, they've just beaten the expectation. Year on year contraction, 6.8%. Unemployment in China, which is pretty hard to measure anyhow. I think their unemployment is measured differently to ours here, rising to 5.9%. So that's just come out in the last 10 or 15 minutes. Um, our fourth stock um, on our list today is a health tech company um, specialising in early screening of breast cancer. Um, Gaurav, what, what do you think of Volpara Health Technologies? Yeah, this is a really interesting little business, actually. Well, it's not so little anymore, is it? This is a, um, a sort of a, a three, four hundred million dollar business. What they do, it's a, it's actually a software business, and what it does is it um, is it uh, creates software that overlays um, that goes on top of um, screenings for breast cancer, and it tries to identify um, which scans are more at risk, and it does that by using very large data sets and AI. Um, so we look at this really as a software business more than anything else. 
There's also attached to that um, a more uh, a, a bit more boring and more traditional sort of um, administration software business as well. But the really exciting part is this um, this um, AI sort of uh, uh, um, AI um, um, software that that can help um, identify um, more accurately which scans are at risk of, of breast cancer. And the key here is that um, the, the, the business that has access to the most sets of data um, will end up with the, the most accurate predictions in the end. So there is a very large market to be gained and it's likely going to be won by only one or two um, businesses. So they're in the running here for a very large prize. And so far, they've done very well. Um, look, it's not really my cup of tea. I just think it's very speculative, and um, and I would probably search for more certainty somewhere else. But if you feel like a punt, and if you want to speculate, you could do a lot worse um, than than go into this because I think the the ultimate prize here is very large, and they're on the, on their way to to winning it. Um, okay. So they've done very well so far. Technology is great. I would just caution that. Um, it can look scary sometimes when you're looking at a business with a sort of a 300 market cap and a $9 million revenue line. You might think this is crazily valued and this is expensive, but we have to remember that SaaS businesses, software as a service businesses, again, their revenue recognition is a little bit different and they can they actually understate their revenue and the true um, contract value of what they're selling is a lot higher than what they recognize on the books. So it's probably not as crazy as it superficially looks. Hmm, okay. Michael? Yep. Uh, interesting um, business. They've had a, a decent run of news flow recently. They delivered some updates on their recurring revenue, which exceeded their, their forecast. They also announced um, a new contract as well. And off the back of that, their share price jumped. And surprise, surprise, they've used that share price strength to undertake a capital raising. Um, the thing is with this business, um, to all the points that Gaurav's touched upon, it has constantly pushed out its break-even point. Uh, and recently there has been some signs that some of their costs are blowing out, particularly in New Zealand, where they uh, recognise a fairly big loss uh, or bigger than expected loss there. So this company will need to continue to deliver, but they've certainly got a foothold. Um, in the US, for instance, their analytics software is used to diagnose 27% of women in the US with their cancer wow. diagnosis. So they definitely have something there with merit, um, just a matter of delivering, uh, as they say, because yeah. with businesses like this, um, it can go pear-shaped very quickly <laughs> um, if they don't deliver to all the hype that they've been yep. um, feeding the market in recent years and all that capital investment they've been undertaking. Right. So not, so a, business, you, not you, a business that we followed in too much so detail. So you're, you're a bit like Gaurav, yeah, not, right. not, not your cup of tea, it's a, but if you want a punt, that's it's right. an interesting that's one. That's right. Inter um, number five, Michael, we might kick off with you, Ordinate, a, um, a digital... Mm -hmm audio-visual network system. Yeah, this is a business we actually have for clients and it's been a bit of a wild ride. We're doing initially very, very well and it's sort of come back to the field before finding a bit of a base and bouncing again. It's a company that's involved in the audio digital space and audio-visual space. So if you think about a, an old school electronics item, how many cords are associated with plugging that in and transmitting the sound, etc. These guys have been able to do that digitally and over sort of Bluetooth, etc. And their components are used in many, many electronics globally from Yamaha to Bose and all these big brands right. that basically right. use this Dante component, which is produced by Ordinate. 
Um, so I think about 70% of the products in class um, incorporate one of Automate's products, uh, which is quite impressive. They've been growing their market share significantly, uh, I think five times the rate of their nearest competitor. So we feel as though this is a business that certainly has some merit going forward. Yeah. Uh, their focus primarily in the past has been on the audio digital space. They're now looking to broaden out and increase their market um, into the visual audio space as well and, and, digital, and, and visual markets. So yeah, a business that we think is obviously a bit more speculative, uh, can be accused of being highly priced, um, but we feel as though it's in a good space um, and performing very, very well. Okay, so tick for Ordinate. Uh, Gaurav, what's your view? <coughs> yeah, we actually own this and we've owned it for quite some time. The share price had a two in front of it when we first um, got a hold of it. And um, it's one that we've been quite excited about for some time. Um, so Michael's explained the, the basics quite well there. It's um, it, it turns analog um, audio networks, which are connected with like a spaghetti line of wires and cords, into digital audio networks, which um, run through um, Ethernet cable. And you can manipulate them and set them up and expand and contract them much more easily. And the business does that by selling. What they sell is actually um, a protocol, which is um, a microchip and a piece of software that works together. And every piece of audio um, and, and visual equipment that has one of these chips can talk to one another. So it, it is a bit like um, Bluetooth. We've explained it in the way that imagine, imagine if Bluetooth was listed on the ASX. Um, every device, pretty much every electronic device in the world contains a Bluetooth chip. If you could monetize that, um, you'd make a fortune. Now, as it happens, Bluetooth is actually owned by an international cooperative organization that's not for profit. Um, but, but Dante is, um, will be monetized and it will be a monopoly when it's ultimately mm. up and running. Um, and when you think about the kind of business you really want to own, the best kind of business is an unregulated monopoly. And I think that's exactly what, um, what Ordinate is building here. It's not evident yet in the numbers because they're still building scale and they have to build up one, um, the, the, the life cycle of, of these products is actually quite long. So um, they work with the manufacturer, say Yamaha or Sennheiser, and get those, those chips and that software into their products at, at the stage of manufacture. So it takes a few years um, to actually recognize the revenue. But if you're patient with this, I think this could be a tremendous success story. Mm. I think they'll end up having sort of 80% or so of a billion dollar markets. I think ultimately we could be looking at a, a revenue base of sort of $800 million here at very high margin. Um, and this is only a $300 million business. I think this is, um, this is still really interesting buy for me, even though it's gone up multiples from where we first bought it. Yeah, um, it's a, it had a pullback with the rest of the market, bit of a bounce. Would you be a buyer at this price, Gaurav? Yes, if you, if you need to have a, a bit more of a long-term focus, but yeah. um, if we can look five or 10 years from now, this is ultimately a much larger business um, than it is today. And, and I think that's the way we have to approach it. It's, it's, it's got, um, um, as Michael said, it, it, it's got 70% of the entire market already in terms of products, but every new device that's being manufactured is being manufactured with a Dante protocol. So it's leaving its competitors for dead. And I think its competitors are now just basically irre irrelevant. Um, and that's a great place to be. Mm. 
Yeah, that's a good story, Michael, for yeah, it's an Australian business. An interesting one. Look, it's moved very rapidly off its recent lows, which is yeah. always a, a good sign. It's one of those businesses in this environment, if we do see a bit of a retracement and we start to retest some of the lows that we saw a few weeks ago, you would expect it to come back yeah. a long way. But if you be patient, I think with the volatility that's been around, you could pick it up okay. at a slightly lower prices. All but right. it's a good story. Yeah, it is a really good story and uh, great to learn about it as well. So that's our fifth stock in our 10 that we're going through on the call. Let's move on to uh, the second five on the call today. Uh, 10 stocks, two experts, 60 minutes to get through them all. Uh, John Ling Group, um, a specialist builder in insurance restorations, basically. Uh, They've carved out a bit of a niche and um, Michael hasn't performed too badly. Yeah, look, I must admit, this wasn't a business I was familiar with no, uh, before today. <laughs> um, I think the market cap was about 250 yeah. mil or so, but it is a bit of a niche builder um, in that it's involved in insurance-related building and restoration um, claims. And that makes up, I think, about 85% of their earnings before tax, which um, is meant to be unaffected by what's going on at the moment. You would think they're pretty agnostic to the coronavirus and the goings-on there and there was one business that i did notice that they are involved in which is commercial um, building so doing a lot of shop fit outs for retailers etc that part of their business will likely you would think be heavily impacted by the coronavirus Um, but look it's been a solid performer over a a decent period of time and i wouldn't want to go and say much more than that because it's not one i'm too familiar with okay uh gorev what do you think Yeah, look, thank you to the viewer who um, who pointed this out. I've never heard of this business before, and um, I've just spent um, you know five or ten minutes looking at it. I've been really impressed with what I've seen. Um, I, I can't believe this has escaped my my attention in the past. Um, it's it's great because God, it's so boring, right? Um, and those kind of really dull, boring businesses can very often generate great returns. What I really like about this one is that it's got a huge amount of insider ownership. So the, the two two directors own sort of 35, um, 38% of the stock. Um, it's very conservatively managed. Um, balance sheet looks terrific, really capital light model. So you get really high returns on capital and it looks like they can deploy capital at reasonable rates. So I've just noticed that the balance sheet has just been moving quite a bit. So they're clearly making deals and and deploying capital to get rates, good rates of return. And I think that's really attractive. It shows that they actually can grow and they're not just captured in a small niche. Um, so look, this is one for me that I'm gonna go back and do a bit more work on. I don't know it well enough to be able to give a call, I'm sorry, but um, uh, big thank you for pointing this one out. I think it's, mm. it's worth well worth a closer look. Okay, all right. So uh, not, not really a yes uh, from the panel today, but uh, Thank you for sending it through because it's now on their radar, which, uh, as Gaurav says, boring, but boring can be good in these sorts of markets if you've got an interesting niche. So John Ling, the group there, keep an eye on it. Uh, we'll go from one extreme to the other, a little builder, <laughs> to a monolith of the uh, of the stock exchange, and that's Commonwealth Bank. Um, Gaurav um, sort of changes at the top in the last couple of years. Uh, banks really being relied upon by the federal government to help them with their stimulus going through. You can't get much bigger than the Commonwealth Bank. What do you think? Mm. 
Yeah, look, um, no doubt that this is a wonderful business. It's a terrific franchise. Everyone knows it's had a great history. If you're an investor anyway, it's had a great history. And um, look, I, I just think it, the glory days are behind us here. And, and I don't understand the pricing of CBA. It makes no sense to me. This is at a crazy premium to its peers. So the way we view um, banks is we, we try and value them on an asset base because they really, they're, they're institutions that give out loans um, and they make a return on, on their asset base. So this is valued at a price that's sort of 1.7 times book, which around the world is crazy, sort of two, two times at least what most banks around the world trade at. And he, even here in Australia, you've got ANZ trading at a discount to book. You've got um, Westpac and NAB trading at around book. And this is trading at a huge premium. It earns marginally higher returns, but not enough to justify this price. Even if you wanted to own a bank, um, I, I think this is far too expensive to, okay. to, to hold from here. Um, and I'd rather hold one of the others if you must own a bank. Um, oh, hang on, hang on. A, I was going to pull. Say, say I was. I was going to. I was going to pull you up on that. Um, that's interesting terminology. If you must own a bank, so, so you, you wouldn't be in any of them. Look, um, one of our our income fund owns. Uh, I think they own five or six percent um, in in banks, uh, but that's a very small weighting compared to the market weighting, which is sort of twenty percent. Um, so, uh, from that, you can read that we're not enthused about banks and. Um, on the team, I'm probably the least enthused of all about banks. If I had my way, I don't think we'd own any. Um, but you know, it's, it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile delving into just how these banks in Australia um, generate what has been historically high ROEs, especially compared to international peers. And when you break those returns down, it's clear that Australian banks and, and, and there's nothing magical about Aussie banks. They own the same return on assets as every other bank in the world, around 1% or so. What, what makes the ROE higher is that um, they're higher leverage. Um, so they have more leverage than most other banks. And they have that because 60% of the loan book is concentrated on property. And when, you, you're when you're handing out loans against property, you can obviously gear up your balance sheet a bit more and you can juice up your returns. So the Australian banks aren't necessarily better or brighter than any other bank in the world. It's just that as the, their asset base is concentrated into that mortgage market, and that, that's helped juice up their returns over the last 20 years. Um, I'm a bit concerned about this property market over the next few years, and I think there may be a reckoning for the Aussie banks. Um, yeah. I, I, that's why I'm particularly bearish on banks now. Um, there's a whole other argument to be made about disruption from, um, from neobanks. You look at Northern Europe, and neobanks are making a significant inroad into the market, and I think it's only a matter of time until that happens here. But even without that, I just think where property at the moment, the banks are looking particularly risky. Michael, are you a, yeah. are you a bank fan? Or oh, are you no, on? I was on the show a couple of weeks ago, and CBA yeah. was one of the stocks, and I was pretty negative on, yeah. on CBA and the banks then. And we I still think you are. said they, they, were, they were great. Uh, what were they? They, they were great uh, at undermining capital. Uh, probably cap capital eaters. Look, I think, um, I'm not sure if I said those exact words, but our, our view is basically that 
Interest rates have come down to the levels that they are at yeah. the moment. There's enormous pressure on net interest margins in this environment. Funding costs have gone up overseas as well, which puts further pressure on margins. Um, CBA trades on a, a premium and has done throughout history at the moment. I think that premium, or certainly before this recent crisis, that premium towards the other banks was at its largest um, in history, I think. Yeah. Um, the thing with Commonwealth Bank is it's got more of a focus on residential mortgages. Um, it's less a business bank. It's got less in the institutional space as well relative to some of the other banks such as the NAB. Um, ANZ, for instance, writes a lot of institutional loans as a proportion of their loan book compared to CBA. And as Gaurav just touched upon, because of the fact that most of those loans are residential backed, they potentially trade on a premium to some yep. of the other banks. But for us, um, their return on equity has been under a lot of pressure for some time. The fact is after the Royal Commission, their focus will be going back on residential mortgages away from some of the other products that they were offering. And that will put further pressure on their non-interest revenue. It will put further pressure on their return on equity. And that will ultimately have to put pressure um, on their dividends per share as well. So for us, we just feel as though that the heady days are behind the banks, yeah. the days where interest rates came down from over 10%. Uh, credit exploded, housing prices went through the roof. That perfect storm for the banking sector is unlikely to be replicated. I'm not saying the banks are going to fall off a cliff from these very depressed yeah. levels. I mean, I think CBA is down 30 odd percent, the others are down 50% in the space of 12 months. But they'll just tend to oscillate more on sentiment, I think, more than anything else, right. because it's going to be very, very mm -hmm. challenging uh, for them to grow their earnings at any significant okay. rate. All right. So here's a question to both of you. Because yeah, a lot of Australian re, uh, investors hold the big four banks. Yes, they drop 30%. They'll all be thinking, okay, they're going to spike back up again. Yeah. From what you're both saying, they're going to oscillate at this level. If you've been and get your own advice and you've got to take into account the tax situation and all of those different caveats, would you be selling out of your big four banks because there are better opportunities at the moment? Michael? Look, it's an opportunity cost situation and depending on how much percentage of your portfolio you've got in banks, we often see clients that come across to us who have 60, 70 yeah. percent of their portfolio in banks. And even though they've fallen by as much as they have, um, our general advice would be to them to potentially reduce their weight. You don't have to be an all in or all out. Yeah. Maybe sell a portion of your banks, free up that capital and deploy it in some of the companies maybe that we've discussed today that have had a very big pullback as well, but the outlook Yep. looks far more attractive okay. because it's an opportunity cost. If you can free up that capital and get a better return with that capital than leaving it in your banks, then it's a worthwhile yep. decision. The caveat, as you say, is a lot of people have held these banks for 30, time. 40 years. And in the case yep. of Commonwealth Bank, if you bought it in the float in the early 90s, you're probably sitting on very yep. large capital gains. So yep. that's why we recommend small adjustments over time as opposed to big yep. holders, bolus okay. moves. Uh, Gorain for Macquarie Bank? No, Macquarie Bank's obviously a very different breed. It gets lumped together with the big four, but it's yeah. much more of an asset manager these days. Um, it's obviously got its market-facing businesses as well. It's a very different business uh, than it was in the GFC when yeah. people have these horrendous memories of Commonwealth Bank falling from around 100 all the way to below $20. They've de-risked their business significantly. They're more of an asset manager, as I touched upon, which gives them more recurring revenue. Um, and the businesses that tend to fluctuate with market conditions are less of an impact on right. their balance sheet and revenue compared to what they once were. Uh, they generate, I think, 60% of their earnings from overseas these days, even more than that, maybe up to 70%. 
they benefit from the falling Aussie dollar um, and things like that. So for us, Macquarie Bank is one that we're actually buying um, a couple of weeks ago when it was sort of under a lot of pressure because we think from a, a long-term trajectory, they're in a pretty good position. They've delivered okay. very good returns on their capital. Um, they've provided very good share price growth as well as dividend per share growth, which is something that the other big four banks can't mm. attest to. Okay, so a tick for Macquarie. Gaurav, uh, do you put Macquarie in a, in a different basket? Oh, yes. This is a very different beast. In fact, I would venture to say that there's no other business in the world quite like Macquarie. It is um, one of the most intriguing and amazing businesses I've ever seen. Um, and I say that not because of what it does. It's because of the culture of, of the business. You know, we, we come we one of the, the things we're always looking for is trying to identify a competitive advantage. And Often that, that's a box ticking exercise. You know, do you have a brand? Do you have economies of scale? The most nebulous, but arguably the most powerful competitive advantage a business can have is its culture. It's the hardest to replicate. It's the hardest to identify, um, but it's also the hardest to, to, to change and replicate. Um, and Macquarie just has this amazing culture. Think about where they were um, when they started. That, this was just a, a regular a merchant bank and they morphed into this kind of infrastructure um, fund of funds, and now they've morphed into um, an, an asset manager. And in between, they've been a commodity trader, um, a, a fleet manager, just all sorts of things. At its heart, Macquarie is a collection of super entrepreneurial people who are incentivized to go and make money any way they see fit. And so I worry less about what it does today. And if you can just get this at a decent price and look today is mildly expensive but not crazy expensive so uh, you know if if if, it, if you have um if you're a bit more conservative and you don't want to be chasing some of the, these these high risk opportunities um at the moment then macquarie is a perfectly sensible place to park your capital just recognize what you're buying the macquarie of today may look nothing like the macquarie 10 years from now yeah. and that is a good thing this is an extraordinary business um, and uh, I'm a huge yeah. fan. It's a, it's a great example of a business that just pivots all the time, does it? They, well, that's and the right. common theme is they know, they know how to make money. Well, that's the, the innovation is their, their, yeah. their theme and, and they've managed to innovate consistently through history. Yeah, okay. All right, some good reps there on Macquarie. Um, innovation, uh, what about our, our ninth stock out of the 10 today? Next uh, DC, a data centre operator, just... Gone yep. through, uh, Michael, a big cap raise this week. Yeah, this is a business that we like and have liked for a while um, and done quite well off it. In fact, it's held up and been buoyant throughout these periods. Yep. Um, essentially, it's a data centre operator. Um, and I think now they own mm. a lot of their data centres as mm. well after they acquired Asia Pacific data centres. Um, essentially, just, like, just look at that share price well, <laughs> compared with so many others. That's right. And while everyone was crashing... In, it sort of did a bit of a crash in, in, uh, in late February, but the rebound has been enormous. Well, like our thirst for data is unquenchable yeah. right at the moment, unquenchable. So basically, if you're a, a person, whether you're a business or you're the, the military, the government, everyone is storing more and more data. Um, and the fact is capacity in each of the new centres that has been built by NextDC has been mopped up very, very quickly. Uh, and essentially they receive rent for storage space in these large data yep. centers. So it's a fairly simple model in some sense. 
Um, they've obviously got a big CapEx program where they keep rolling out more and more centers and then effectively storing more and more data. Um, they were one of the first movers in this country where they got a lot of prime space um, in prime locations. Yeah. Uh, the problem is going forward, it's gonna become harder and harder to get the same quality assets as they had early on. Because for a lot of businesses, being in close proximity to the exchange, for instance, if you're a high frequency trader, mm -hmm. or if you're a government department that needs to have storage close to your department building, a location actually is key because those fractions yep. of a millisecond make a big difference. So going forward, it's going to be a bit more difficult to be in those prime locations, but so far they've executed uh, very, very well. Yeah. Um, Gaurav, uh, have we missed the ride on this one? It's right at its, its peak. Yeah, so we own NextDC and we've owned it for quite some time as well. Um, I, I think it's taken some time for the market to really understand data center economics. Um, and uh, I think it's only now, the market's only now beginning to catch on to what this business truly is. And it's not really a technology business. We, we sort of looked at it more as, a, as an infrastructure or a property business. Um, and like an infrastructure business, they go out and they spend a lot of capital up front. And, um, and I think that's scared a lot of investors in the past. And that's why we were able to pick this up relatively cheaply is when they, when they build a data center, it costs sort of $150, $250 million to build the data center. And then it takes several years um, to get customers inside and start earning a rate of return. But we will look back at some of the um, old data centers that they built and looked at the rate of return that they generate once these centers start to fill up and it's extraordinary rates of return. Um, we're sort of talking about 30% returns on capital here with very, very low um, churn rates. Um, his, over, the, over the world, um, data centers tend to have only sort of 2% annualized churn rates. The only people who leave are the businesses that go bust. Mm. And, and it's easy to see why that's the case. Um, if you're in a data center, you have all your critical servers and equipment, the lifeblood of your business in that data center. Changing means turning off your entire business, physically moving servers from one center to another and reconnecting it all again. And very few businesses are gonna do that for a marginal cost saving unless yep. they stuff something up. And this is operationally a very solid business. Okay. Um, so we're quite happy with this. I think. The market's caught up with this, and it's um, it's no longer cheap. But um, I'd be holding it. I think there's there's more to come. Okay, holding it. Obviously, you're I'm, both very I'm happy. Would you I be wouldn't a buyer? be. I wouldn't be piling in at the moment, right. just okay. given it's run up so hard. But you could do worse um, than right. a company like this, even okay. at these prices. So if there's a big put, put it on your list. If there's another big pullback right. to the to the lows of uh, of last That's month, right. maybe look at I just it. think it's going to be difficult to replicate the same rates of return yeah. going forward. Okay. So the best years are probably behind it, but that's not to say there's not good years ahead. Okay. Bugger. I wish the, wish the call was going a year ago when we were talking <laughs> about next DC. <laughs> Let's see if we can find another one. Um, our final uh, stop for today, um, Michael, what do you think? Paragon Care, provider of... Uh, equipment and devices to the medical yeah, centre. Well, moving on from a good pick to one of not my finest moments, it'll be Paragon <laughs> Care. Unfortunately, um, sort of out of it before most of the damage was done. But this is a, a business that sells medical equipment, um, yeah. ranging from hospital beds to uh, stainless steel utensils used um, for various surgeries, etc. Um, this was a company that was doing very, very well. They were doing a lot right for so long. They built up their balance sheet strength, etc. 
And then they went on this enormous acquisitive spree where they acquired, I think, over 10 different businesses that weren't necessarily all interrelated right. other than the fact that they were healthcare related. So this is a typical example of a roll-up acquisition model gone wrong. Um, they keep acquiring all these businesses and then what they were expecting to get out of these companies and generate in revenue just never came to fruition. Um, and they took on a fair bit of debt to get all of that done. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, um, they couldn't service that debt as look, easily as they could that, have in the past. Chart, huh? That's right. Up so the, above 90 cents now, I, 17. I think this, they were even as ambitious to acquire a business that was bigger than themselves. And you don't oh. really see that too often these no. days. So yeah, look, I'll be steering clear yep. of this one. one too many, one, too many two, balls one, in the air, yeah, I think. Yeah. One's bitten about That's right. eight, eight times shy. <laughs> uh, Gaurav? Yeah, look, this ticks a lot of boxes for the kind of business you do not want to own. Um, <laughs> it's a sort of low value way. Of... Yep. Oh, it's on. a low value add um, uh, supplier of goods. Very competitive, very low margin, awful balance sheet, and uh, poorly judged management. Uh, I only needed a few minutes to look at this. I don't know it well, but. I'm not going to spend any more time on it. It's just an avoid for me. Yep. All right. Okay. <laughs> you uh, you really led us up to the cliff and down. This ticks <laughs> every box of why you shouldn't invest in this company. I love it. Um, Gaurav, it's always great to have you on the program. Really appreciate it. Gaurav Sodi from, uh, from InvestSmart. Michael Wayne from uh, Medallion in, uh, Financial. Really good to see you again. You it's much. been a terrific hour and I really appreciate your time and your thoughts. Just to recap, um, Electro, no, Auckland Airport, uh, both of the guys liked as part of our top 10, um, largely because Auckland Airport is the biggest property developer in New Zealand. No for CSR, Gaurav likes Brickworks a whole lot better than that. Uh, Volporo Health, no. Ordinate, um, yes. Uh, both the guys um, like that one. Uh, John Ling Group, none of us had ever heard of it, but are intrigued by it and starting to follow it. Uh, CBA, a no. Macquarie, a big yes. Uh, Next DC was um, maybe we've missed the boat, put that in. This is the data centre operator. If there's a big pullback in the market, great business, great management but pretty high at the moment. And Paragon ticks every box on why you should not invest. So that just about sums it up. That's our top 10 for the call today. We will be back uh, Monday, of course, with another 10 stocks. If you want to suggest a couple that you'd like analysis on, uh, email them in to us, thecall at osbiz.com.au or through our Twitter handle at osbiztv.